Comic book, comic book, does whatever a book does. Read by us while drinking, incoherent rambling. Look out, this is our podcast. Welcome to the SJW Comic Book Club, a weekly book club style podcast where three friends discuss a story arc or event in comics from a literary and progressive point of view. Like most successful book clubs, we have three key elements, books, friends, and booze. I'm host number one, Monte. I'm host number two, Veronica. And I'm host number three, Melissa. The three of us have been friends for years, ever since middle school, and we've always been really into books, movies, and other types of media. We've also always been critical thinkers when it comes to consuming pop culture and probably take things more seriously than they need to be taken. We also generally talk to each other a lot about what we're watching or reading because the best part of consuming media is talking about it with your friends. So that's what we do with this podcast. We take an arc in comics and we discuss it, generally trying to approach it from the perspective of people of color, women, LGBT people, and people who are not as widely represented in fiction. Hence the name SJW for Social Justice Warriors. Um, So this week, I came up with a question to ask you guys because I want to uh, get a little background in order to launch my theme of the season, which is detectives and mysteries. So much like when we used to talk about our background with comics, what is you guys' experience with mysteries slash detective stories in any medium? And what are your favorites? I'll go first. I used to read Nancy Drew books as a kid. I grew up and started watching lighthearted TV and movies that were mysteries. I don't love the horror genre of mysteries or the scary ones that make me feel sad. (laughs) Uh, I generally like the ones that make me feel happy at the end. Um, Not that I can't appreciate them. It's just... I just have a I have a type. Um, but I've also tried to watch classic mystery stories so that I understand pop culture references. It, it's more important to me to understand what people are referencing. It's research. Than to, like, yeah, it's research. So, you know, I've watched scary movies that were a mystery before. I probably won't ever watch them again. But, you know, <laughs> that's valid. the way it is. Some of my favorite mystery stories are Knives Out. That movie that came out a little bit ago, Fabulous. a couple years ago. Who knows? I don't remember. At some time. Uh, <laughs> Veronica Mars, Psych, Clue, the movie, Monk, you know, like the yeah. fun ones. The fun TV show ones. The happy ones. <laughs> I've watched a lot of the sad ones, but those ones are my favorite. Right. Beautiful. How about you, Monte? Um. So as you know, I really like true crime but it's only from a certain perspective and because I don't like cops I don't like prosecutors and I don't like detectives like I'm just very anti-law enforcement in general (laughs) um I don't really like a whole lot of mystery stories because like it's from the perspective that I care about the least like when I I really love criminal justice and like criminal psychology, but it's because I find criminals interesting and I find victim stories to be important. But the stories of investigators and law enforcement and prosecutors, I could not give less of a shit about. So there's what I'm saying is there's not that many that I've watched. Um, but I also actually watched Monk when I was little because it was a show that my mom really liked. So um, that would probably be the one that I 
like the most. Um, And then, of course, like different comics, like, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of Batman, but (laughs) I do like read Batman and Robin stories and stuff. So that would probably be another favorite, I guess. I really liked a few of the animated series, like the Batman animated series shows. Um, Those are usually pretty good. So I guess I like mystery stories that are the least realistic, like the <laughs> least real are the ones that I like. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, for me, I, of course, as a kid, read like Encyclopedia Brown, Nancy Drew, that kind of stuff. But uh, if I were to give you all the things I've read and you tried to guess where they fell in the timeline of my life, you would be wrong because my parents do not care about letting kids watch scary things uh, or gory things. And my mom loves mysteries, loves horror, loves true crime. And so I think before I could read, I was probably watching the X-Files and being scarred for life by them. Um, And then it just progressed from there. I've seen a lot of Stephen King movies before I should have been allowed to. All that stuff. True crime, like, Forensic Files was on 100% of the time in my house. And then I started reading the sort of, like, recent era crime novels like James Patterson, Janet Ivanovich. Is it Michael Koontz? Something like that. Um, That sounds right. Yeah. That guy. All those things. And then I kind of, I've seen, you know, Batman the Animated Series. I got obsessed with it myself, just irrespective of books and what my mom watched. Uh, And then in the last few years, uh, I really got into Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers. Basically, I love mysteries. Knives Out is a fucking fabulous movie, and every movie should be a cozy mystery like Knives Out from here on out. Probably it's my top favorite It was fabulous. I love that movie. So yeah, if I had come up with the topic for a podcast and made you guys do it, it would probably be not a comic book podcast, but a mysteries podcast. I consider myself steeped in it to an untoward degree. And I have forgotten more mysteries that I've read or watched than probably I could even guess at. So, I mean, you could do it. I could. <laughs> would you? Right. Would you do it, though? Uh, you might have to host it by yourself, but <laughs> you can indulge yourself. I'm not going to. I've left out the part where the only thing that keeps me from it is the motivation. <laughs> so if I was forced at gunpoint to start a new podcast, it would be a mysteries podcast. So thank you guys for those lovely mystery life histories. Boo. Boo. Minus two points. I didn't mean for that to <laughs> rhyme, but it did. So I'm sad. Uh, but all right. So uh, the reason I ask is that we are reading a great mystery this week. It is Batman The Long Halloween, a classic comic. It came out in 1996 and 1997, written by Jeff Loeb. Loeb? Don't know how to say that. Art and ink by Tim Sale. Colors by Gregory Wright. Letters by Richard Starkings at Comic Craft and edited by Archie Goodwin and Chuck Kim. So The Long Halloween is heavily influenced by film noir, as we will discuss later, the title likely in a reference to The Long Goodbye, um, and other films such as The Godfather. So the series continues the story of Carmine Falcone, introduced in Frank Miller's Batman Year One. Set early in Batman's career a few months after the events of Year One, 
The story revolves around the gradual transition of Batman's rogues gallery from simple mob goons to full-fledged supervillains. It is also the origin of Two-Face, spoiler, uh, adding along to the story in Batman Annual Number 14. So the plot of this story, and by the way, we started off by just reading issues 1 through 7, both because it's a quite long comic and because I'm testing out a few format things for my mystery season, and I wanted to have a cutoff point so we can discuss that. So the plot follows Batman's struggle to find a mysterious killer, Holiday, while Harvey Dent's and Jim Gordon's marriages are strained during the process. As the story unfolds, Carmine Falcone hires Freaks in an attempt to stop the Batman and restore power back to the family, only to discover that the Freaks are more powerful than he expected. Uh, and what we read is the evolving course of the serial killer situation, and somewhat each issue is a holiday and a specific rogues gallery supervillain. Uh, and the mystery is progressing. I can't summarize the whole thing because, of course, twists and turns, but feel free to read along or read a summary to know what's going on if we don't mention anything. Uh, you can, of course, get The Long Halloween on Comixology or Amazon and probably at any public library because it is a classic graphic novel and a one-off. So, Melissa, uh, would you like to introduce our drink for this week? So this week we have a classic noir drink called the French 75. It is gin, simple syrup, lemon juice, and brut champagne. Uh, champagne. Mixed together in a way that's particular. You can Google the recipe. Uh, it is refreshing and citrusy and to be served cold. Mm -hmm. Like murder. Like <laughs> <laughs> like revenge. <laughs> like revenge. <laughs> yes. And we chose this because it appears in a classic noir film. Yeah. And as a fun fact, the one of the calling cards that the murderer does is leaves a glass of champagne. And we see champagne being drunk like multiple times. In the so summer. much champagne. My God. And that is. Rich awesome. mobsters love that champagne. Yeah. I love that champagne. Movers and shakers love to Champagne, just... y'all. In, in the first <laughs> issue, Bat or Bruce Wayne says, oh, I I was uh, I was on my way to the bathroom, but you know what champagne does to you? <laughs> Crazy what champagne does. That was the lamest line in the whole comic, by uh, the way. You know, that, that champagne uh, really makes you, you lose your way, huh? <laughs> yeah, you really, really lose your way when you're, you're drinking that champagne. <laughs> It'll do that to you, you know? I hate that phrase. It's so unnatural to say <laughs> in normal conversation, but... <laughs> anyway that'll do it <laughs> that'll do ya <laughs> so don't get lost while we're discussing this comic because of all the champagne whatever that means boo minus three points <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are we keeping pun and terrible joke score I just am. for you <laughs> we should have been keeping it for Melissa <laughs> Veronica you should know by now that I am always keeping score <laughs> good to know All right, so having read the first seven issues of The Long Halloween, what are you guys' general impressions? I really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, I know I said earlier that I don't like mysteries, but it's not, it's, this was an okay mystery because it's not real. <laughs> yes. Um, and also, I feel like it had a really good balance between 
like there wasn't too much Harvey Dent. There wasn't too much Jim Gordon. There wasn't too much Batman, you know, like it was really well balanced between the investigators. And then you also had other characters like Catwoman thrown in and some of the villains. And it it really gets into the Falcone family, like their dynamics between each other, which I thought I found really interesting. Um, And then I also thought it was just really, really like exceptionally well paced. Um, for a story, which usually pacing isn't something I really care that much about. But apparently, if something is just very, very well paced, then that's something that I do notice. So yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot. Nice. So far. I don't know what the (laughs) second half will hold. The second half might be so terrible. (laughs) Burn it in effigy. (laughs) The worst paced story of all time. (laughs) I have to say, I need to take back everything that I said last time. This was the worst. (laughs) worse (laughs) so melissa uh well obviously i agree with monte i also agree that it was well paced i thought that the story was interesting i don't love like necessarily guessing who it is but it wasn't super obvious you know i mean yes there were the most obvious oh it's definitely gonna be this guy of course it's this guy harvey dent he's the most (laughs) suspicious man of all time but i liked it i thought it was i liked the art of it I thought it was pretty well um, depicted. There were obviously some things where there's like there's like ten thousand mob men. Yes, so many <laughs> mob men. <laughs> like, and they're impossible to tell apart. <laughs> they're impossible. So the only person I could tell was the Roman Falcone because he had three scratch marks on his face. He's the only distinguishable mob person <laughs> yes, in yeah. the entire book. Yeah. He's very distinct. The rest of them, no. <laughs> yeah. There was kind of an element of him being a person and then like everybody else I had to figure out who <laughs> they like who who just died. Right. And I would find out like in the next panel when someone's like some did you hear somebody just killed all the Maloney guys? Like just some randos and I'm like okay they were randos. That's cool. Like <laughs> <laughs> they weren't anyone yeah. who I should have known the name. <laughs> yeah, there were like a few distinct people that you could tell at the beginning, but then sort of like in the middle of this, you know, first half of this story, I was like I have no idea who any of you are but you just get, got murdered i'll figure out who you are in a second and, and it did a pretty good job of, of if something was confusing at least explaining it like within a few pages right. yeah. um and, it, and you weren't like super lost on the story so it it definitely had like this like they throw you for a loop maybe unintentionally, but of all three of us felt like that. And then maybe that was purposeful, but they throw you for a loop and then explain it in a few pages and you didn't have to wait too long. So that was nice. It was definitely good about that. Like there's a few stories that we read that you just stayed confused about things and then got more confused as the story (laughs) goes on. But it like, it cleared up any confusion pretty much immediately. Pretty much. Yeah. With so many characters, I can appreciate the recap we got in, in issue seven, which was the last one we read, where they're like, all right, let's review the clues. And you have like <laughs> yeah. both Batman and the Riddler going through the clues. And you're like, oh, yes, I remember that. Mm-hmm, yes, issues one through six. That was definitely all the clues. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this recap, the Riddler. <laughs> you mentioned the art too, Melissa. Like it really reminded me of the uh, Magneto infamous art. Weirdly. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. It was very gloomy. 
and like very pessimistic yes oh yeah very bleak like very like weirdly chunky character drawing especially you can tell with people's fingers they're very like square (laughs) (laughs) men's fingers yeah catwoman's fingers are extra pointy (laughs) yes but yeah i agree with all the things you said i love the pacing um that might be because of the like monthly episodic pre-planned nature but even apart from all the things you guys said i i expected to like this comic because it's like universally lauded and it's batman and i like batman but i did not expect it to be like a huge nostalgia bomb like my history with comics something i've never thought to mention is that um i had a cousin who really liked comic books and he especially liked venom and when i was a really little kid i was like both scared and intrigued by them like now at this age i can tell like this is kind of the same feeling that people might have thought things were satanic about just like it seems like it's a cartoon and i'm a kid so i think cartoons are for me but it's also scary and violent and dark so to me it was like beyond even the things that adults watch like boring sitcom shows on tv and i don't feel that way anymore because i'm an adult now and i know that like this isn't that dark it's comic book but it really put me in that place of like this is the like mysteriously dark moody verging on edgelord type stuff that i thought comics were when i was a little kid and just got a glimpse of in like batman the animated series so this is very close to being what my batman is from a child which is batman the animated series and like the tim burton batmans mushed together this has that like angry batman face in it that i don't like that much but (laughs) like yeah yeah Yeah. back in the bottle comic days you had us read the killer joke and none of us or at least me and Monte were not fans of it but no. this one is really good mm-hmm. and I feel like they're similar in a lot of ways too but there's something that's just so much better about yeah. this one yeah like it's just easier to digest it's easier to follow it's not as like I feel like this this author wasn't whoever wrote this Jeff I'm Loeb. sorry I forgot yeah Jeff Loeb <laughs> wasn't trying to shock the audience he was actually he's actually trying to tell a story yeah whereas i felt like a lot of times in the killing joke it was they were just trying to shock you right right. i feel like they were both kind of aiming for the same like ideal of an atmosphere but there's a line that the killing joke crossed that was too far whereas this one is right where it should be yeah, yeah, too so far for us, at least. Yeah, yeah. For a lot of people liked it, I guess. Yes. I don't know what's wrong with you people, but... <laughs> yes, I liked it somewhat for the story, but I definitely had very many, like, ugh, moments in The Killing Joke, which I did not have in this one. Yeah, and there was some, I mean, there was, like, gore and stuff in this one, too. Like, you know, right. there was there was gore, there was a lot of violence, but it didn't, it never came across to me as gratuitous or, mm-hmm. like... put in there just to like make the reader uncomfortable right yeah so i think we're getting into my first discussion point which is just general plot general art general pacing and the atmosphere of course which we'll be bridging into a bit later so were there any particular things in the plot or the overarching story that you guys would like to talk about particularly since i heard that melissa really liked poison ivy any of the depictions of the rogues gallery that you found very interesting. Yeah, so in your synopsis, when you talk about how the Falcone family is hiring freaks, (laughs) in the issues one through seven that we read, we see Ivy coming in, 
to distract Bruce Wayne so that they can open up their money laundering through the bank that he's a board member on. It's the particulars, honestly, are <laughs> a means to an end. Anyway, right. so the so she comes in to distract him and to seduce him and like put him under a spell. She looks fucking amazing. Like iconic. The Ivy art is beautiful. I love how she looks in this comic. It's wonderful. Um, and they also bring in the Riddler in the in issue seven that we see. And honestly, I was like chuckled. <laughs> <laughs> the Riddler is so great. It's so funny. <laughs> I, so I, it was like a, I was like jolly old santa belly laughing at uh, the riddler's <laughs> shenanigans in issue seven um because it he was really only there as as a means to recap everything uh all the clues and suspicions that a reader we might have yeah i enjoyed both of their cameos nice. even though they were brief they were wonderful yes just poison oh wait you didn't you didn't read ahead did you veronica i did not oh, okay i was gonna ask if poison ivy comes back but you wouldn't know I don't, I think it's very like episodic because yeah. I didn't mention in my synopsis and whatnot, but this story uh, was a year long event. So each issue came out one per month for a whole year from Halloween of one year to Halloween of the next year. So I think they also were being somewhat episodic with the rogues gallery coming in, mm-hmm. apart from Catwoman, obviously. Yeah. I, I really liked. I really like the way that the rogues were introduced and like, so it's weird because I really like episodic story, like episodic stories where people are coming in and going out and coming in and going out. But I feel like there's a certain way to do it where like sometimes when authors do this, it'll be like in the middle of an event or the, the middle of a story arc, they'll throw a random character in and they'll come in, there'll be a whole side thing and then they'll leave and it doesn't, it just doesn't matter. You know, and or I think it doesn't that, make sense why they came in or why they left. Yeah, and I think that Inhumans versus X Men is one of the times when I would say <laughs> that happens. But um, you guys love it, so whatever. I, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I won't say anything about it, but like, I can't fucking believe that you guys like it. Okay, now on to my next point. <laughs> but um, I think in this story, it was really great the way that they introduced these characters and took them out, like Poison Ivy and Riddler. But they did add something. They still added something to the story. But it's like you didn't really need to know a whole lot about that character to feel, you know, the the to care about their contribution. Mm-hmm. And then also it like makes you interested in those characters a little bit. Um, it's like a showcase. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it was like a showcase. So I really like the way that the rogues were used. And I'm really looking forward to like who is introduced in the second part, second like half. who yeah. is going to come in and stuff. Should be interesting. Yeah. Even though she wasn't part of the episodic nature, I adore the depiction of Catwoman in this comic. It's not necessarily... Except the tail. Except the tail is weird. <laughs> um, this this outfit is in uh, Batman Arkham City, which is a video game I love, and I always thought it was really ugly. And it kind of is, but it really fits the art, I feel like. It really fits yeah. the art style. It is very ugly, but that doesn't make it bad, yeah. necessarily. And especially about Catwoman in here and Selena Kyle, I really like how her, I think neither Selena Kyle or Bruce Wayne know that the other is Catwoman and Batman. Yeah. Pretty sure. I was wondering that. I'm pretty sure. But I really like depictions of Batman where 
it's like a step back from realism where he has a life as Bruce Wayne that he does care about, where he dates people as Bruce Wayne and, you know, it shows him in his, like, bank chairman role or whatever because it, like, it makes it a little less dire and a little less grimdark and a little more cartoony, which is what I want because Batman the Animated Series, Batman, and Tim Burton Batman are my Batman. Smushed yes! Yes! Tim, look, the <laughs> Tim Burton Batman is the only like batman that i actually like only valid batman did you ever yeah, see the only one. batman the animated series yeah i did i like okay. that too but i'm i'm saying like the that atmosphere i think is the best right kind for batman and there was definitely some of that in especially like when the joker comes in right like there was definitely a lot of that silliness that silly <laughs> campiness that because like batman is so you don't need to, it doesn't have to be so heavy. Yes, you know? I agree. I think there are really two styles of art in this comic, and it's in most stark relief when the Joker is there. There's like <clears throat> this kind of stylistically noir art style with shadows and whatnot, and then there's this very cartoony, like especially with the Joker's teeth are like super non-representational <laughs> art. Very impressionistic. Um, and I really enjoy that as well because it's got the like noir mob story and the cartoony silly rogues. Yes. And I really enjoy that. So the other part of the story I want to make sure gets mentioned because it's not part of the... There's like various threads going on as Melissa mentioned. Um, and Monte mentioned as well. So what do you guys think about the sort of frame story of the investigation being like a a deal or like an understanding between Batman, Harvey Dent, and Jim Gordon, and all the times we're with Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent and their marriages? So I I really, really liked the, what's the word, juxtaposition mm -hmm. between Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent. Like it was one of my favorite things about the story. I didn't say it in my general impressions because I saw that it was on the outline. Mm. But like one of my favorite things was like this hardened cop who's like cynical, but still he's, you know, clinging to his his values. And Gotta everything. go buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which what does that even mean in this context? <laughs> Shut the book. That was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Shut the it's book. Kind of stupid. But... You can bend the rules, but you can't break them. What does that no, mean? No, <laughs> you can't. You can't. Bending That's the, the thing. rules is. Bending the laws is breaking the laws. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's, uh, and that's actually one of the things that I absolutely hate about police procedurals and detective stories. But in this, it, like, it's still, it's problematic, yes, but it didn't bother me as much as it usually does. But I really like the difference between him and then the young, you know, upstart kind of district attorney who's also jaded. Mm -hmm. but in a completely different way. Like, I just really, really loved the the play between them. And it's something, it's weird because it happens a lot. Like, um, that show Mindhunter mm. that I was watching with Jonathan Groff has a very similar kind of thing, like a very similar dynamic, but it's not, it's boring and I don't care. <laughs> but for some reason in this story, I definitely, it like pulled me in and I really, really, really enjoyed it a lot. Yes. And then Batman is just kind of, you know, Batman's in there too, but. Yeah, especially given what we know, because if you didn't uh, remember, this is the introduction of Two-Face in this comic. Yes. This is Harvey Dent's first appearance. And the juxtaposition of him being someone that Bruce Wayne believes in Bruce Wayne, who's obsessed with bringing justice to Gotham City 
and he believes in Harvey Dent, but Harvey Dent does all these, like, subtle things, like, he's like, I'm glad that guy got killed, or I'd like to break the law, or I'd like to steal this warehouse of a ridiculous amount of money. That was a absurd amount of money in that warehouse. <laughs> it was absurd. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a city made of money. And also completely yeah. unguarded. Yeah. Right. Just in a warehouse. But it does kind of give you a throwback feeling of like, this is noir and it's supposed to feel like it's in the 40s, even if it's like right. technically in the 90s. I don't so you know. Have a if giant it's warehouse by the river, just <laughs> full of like hundreds of millions of dollars. There was a scene, Ronica, I think you referenced a little bit ago in issue seven where uh, all of Maroney guys the the secondary mob boss guys have been murdered and it's like super rainy and it's a very moody scene <laughs> where uh jim gordon and harvey dent are in an office together talking about how the holiday killer and we have to stop them and harvey dent sort of has this thing well you're kind of doing our job for us you know like mm, Yes, they're dying, but I don't give a shit because, because they should definitely be murdered. And Jim Corden's like, <laughs> you know, they're not doing our jobs. Our jobs don't include murder, Harvey. You know, because he's got his line. He's got his line in the sand. And um, Harvey Dent's like, of course, I wouldn't murder anybody. <laughs> you know, which like... Mustache twirling kind of character where you're like, um, maybe it's Harvey Dent. Like, you know? <laughs> maybe he's the one killing everyone. Yes. No, you're right. Murder is wrong. <laughs> Monte, that was an amazing evil half. Yeah. <laughs> you should be a voice actor. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. The red herrings are really good in this. Like, really good. Carmi- Carmine Falcone. Well, we don't know. Maroni, it might be Harvey Dent. It could be. We it's do not, not Harvey know. Dent. I, I do know. Yeah. But- well, I'm just gonna, there's so many red herrings for everybody, that in, unless it's everybody, then there's at least some red herrings going on. As it turns out, it is everybody. Yeah. It's it's a very good scene where it shows, you know, the difference between Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent. And then there is also, I love how they kind of compare how both husbands deal with their wives. Because they're, I mean, they're kind of being crappy husbands. Yeah. yeah. But they're not the same. Yeah. Like, they're working hard to catch a killer. But at the same time, you know, Jim Gordon is neglecting his wife and his child, whereas Harvey Dent is just neglecting his wife. There's no <laughs> children. Um, sure, she wants kids, but, you know, whatever. You know, he they'll yeah. figure it out eventually, I guess. That's another but- part of, like, the old-timey atmosphere where, like, instead of just divorcing him, the woman would be like, oh, well, he's doing his job and i respect it and it's important etc like i'm worried about him dying literally every day and he's never at home but yeah so they kind of like i think there's like a valentine's day where both women are at home obviously jim barbara gordon is at home with the baby up super late abandoned per huge which Um, uh quick footnote uh this is uh new earth where Barbara Gordon, Babs Gordon, uh, Batgirl, is not Jim Gordon's biological daughter. Yes. His so his wife's name yes. is still Barbara Gordon, but it's not. His name, 
I was very confused about that at the very beginning of the comic because we read Barbara Gordon yes. Batgirl yes. stories, and I was like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. what?" <laughs> um, anyway, but yeah, no, it's his wife, and they have a baby, and you know, he comes home with a heart candy box, which is what the killer who just killed a bunch of people left at the scene, um, and they bring that. Not that specific item, but that similar item home to their wives. Same for um, Harvey Dent to his wife, Gilda. So they kind of have like that sort of, they show both men interacting with their wives and how their wives are dealing with it. We don't get a lot into their wives' psychology other than that obviously Gilda wants a baby and also for Harvey Dent to stop working so much because I guess she wants to see her husband she did marry him. I assume she wanted to see him. Like, I guess. So, uh, so needy. And then we see Barbara Gordon. Yeah. You know, Jim Gordon. doing similar stuff. Jim yeah. Gordon's wife doing the similar thing. Just, you know, him coming home on Thanksgiving in an earlier issue. Right. And she's just wrapped the Thanksgiving. Oh, that's so passive aggressive. Like, I know that's not part of the story, but if I was Jim Gordon's wife and he almost never came home, I would make an entire Thanksgiving dinner. Yes. Like every side and then just wrap it. And then she she clearly <laughs> didn't eat any. Like there's two clean plates the on the table. Is not carved. No. No. Oh my god. I don't think that was meant to be part of the story, but if you like sit and think about it, you're like, it's oh shit. AM. Like <laughs> Oh shit. She mad. I mean, <laughs> it's passive aggressive in the most skilled way, in that like what else could you have done? Yeah. Like I'm gonna do it. But also, it's she justified. Yeah. She didn't, like, put everything away, but then, like, leave a plate of leftovers for him. She made an entire feast, wrapped it in plastic, and left it on the table. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. Uh, but I want to move on, and I asked Melissa, who took a very interesting class in college, to help guide us through a discussion of film noir. Because that is definitely a huge influence on this comic book. So, Melissa, take it away. It definitely is. Um, this is a caveat. I am not a film expert. <laughs> like Veronica mentioned, I took one horror noir film class in college, uh, which was an undeterminable number of years ago. Um, so you are an expert. I took like one third of this class with Melissa because I came to see all the movies. Yes, actually, since Veronica and I were in the same city at the same time and we went to go see a local theater to see the movies per the class because it was a summer class, um, she got to see a lot of the same movies as I did. They were great. Support your local theaters. Anyway. theaters. Yeah. Anyway. But. I love movies and I know very little about it. So I feel <laughs> as though I am an expert in the <laughs> genre of noir. The less you know, the more an expert you'll feel. Yes. I feel as though I'm an expert. Therefore, I am. Um, so, so the information I've collected, it's such an interesting comparison of noir film to, you know, bat- this, this Batman comic that we read. So it's just like, Basically, I've attempted to gather all of this information is just a vague collection of probable facts that I have attempted to gather to help establish a correlation of film noir to the long Halloween. We wanted to compare noir tropes with this comic because, honestly, this comic ticks a lot of the boxes. So just for all of y'all to sit back and learn about noir films because you didn't take the one class in college about (laughs) horror noir like I did. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, gift that. <laughs> so, noir films were basically produced within 1940s and 1950s. Later films would be produced after the 1950s, but they are referred to neo-noir films, and I'll get to that later. But for the sake of explaining what's going on, many argue that the particulars of noir as a genre, because they don't think it's a genre or they're, you know, they, they argue about like the specifics of it. But just to simplify everything, because I'm not an expert, <laughs> um, in general, if you Google best noir films, because you want to be an expert like me, you will find <laughs> that they are all nearly all stylistically black and white films. Uh, they have low-key lighting and unbalanced compositions. It's very visually dramatic and dark and influenced heavily by German expressionism. <laughs> Apart from the German expressionism, which I know nothing about, <laughs> I would say this comic is very stylistically, visually dark, yes. making heavy use of shadows. Heavy, deep shadows yes. is is a stylistic choice for noir. Um, noir is generally a crime melodrama. And by generally, I mean it is a crime melodrama. <laughs> That's what it um, is. It's what it is. Uh, <laughs> it's primarily influenced by hard-boiled detective crime literature. The main character is often a private detective, but could also be a handful of other archetypes, like an aging boxer, a hopeless drifter, a victim of circumstance. <laughs> yeah, you get the idea. Um, <laughs> it's someone... It, usually a man, uh, that all of this happens to. Um, the standard plot would center around the protagonist, who, by pure chance, is placed in a complex and dangerous situation beyond their control and are facing an adversary whose identity and motives are not immediately obvious. We see that in this comic. Yes. <laughs> I'd say this deviates a little because there's not one clear protagonist whose head you live in. Batman, That's you true. hear his thoughts sometimes, but there, Batman yeah. spends very little time on the page for it being a Batman comic. Yeah. He is narrating the whole he thing. He is. Yeah. I would say it's like default he's the protagonist, but... Yeah. But there's multiple threads going on, so yeah. 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 That's yes. one of the things that I like about it so much is that it doesn't focus on one specific investigator so you don't have to get too far into their head. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But like the fact that we don't know who's the one who's the killer, we don't know all the stuff, all of that applies. So the mood has to be, has to be bleak, defeatist, and pessimistic. It has <laughs> to be. There are not there are generally not happy endings <laughs> in noir films. Generally. So far, we've, we're on that track. Even apart from this story, like, any story that focuses on Batman being in the city of Gotham is defeatist and bleak. Like, yes. <laughs> the qual, eventually they made Gotham City be like literally cursed. Like, literally <laughs> there's a curse upon it. Um, yeah. There's like an evil Which Native is kind American of a wizard out, right? or something. Yeah. But it, like, thematically pings because Gotham is just like inescapably corrupt and dark full of crime and murder and darkness and sadness except for Jim Gordon and Harvey Dent obviously I mean they're pretty because Batman believes sad. in them yeah well just Jim Gordon <laughs> Harvey Jim Dent Gordon. becomes a serial killer yeah Batman did believe in him though 
Um, in Batman Year One, by the way, is focuses a lot on Jim Gordon. If you guys did not know, which you have no reason to do so, um, but he's like he moves to Gotham City, but like he's so tragically sad about being here he like emotionally cheats on his wife with his partner because she understands how terrible everything is and like honestly he should have just moved right back away but still is in gotham city the land of terribleness (laughs) so common tropes of noir films are the double cross (gasps) or the betrayal um you see that a lot in movies the double cross you see a ton of cigarette smoking check (laughs) trench coat check check venetian blinds so many so many trench coats (laughs) an unconscionable number of unconscionable i'd never even noticed the venetian blinds but their venetian blinds are literally in the second panel (laughs) (laughs) wait what is it about the why are they uh they're kind of in the first panel too in the background yeah they're just in a ton of noir films is it because they're just like because it kind of obstructs your face but not yeah, really so and- if you google venetian blinds noir and go to the image search you will find ten thousand people staring gloomily through <laughs> venetian blinds while the shadows of the yeah. venetian blinds are on their face and on the background like it is it is very affecting. Yeah. It is. It gives you those like metaphoric jail bars across exactly. your face and also obstructs mm. outside from you and yeah. lets you look without being seen. Like it's That is very weird. I would not expect that to be that, that never is very about specific. That <laughs> it's very specific. We talked about it all the time in my horror noir film class from college. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but so it's that's that's a thing those that's like a common i now so, know that's a thing um, and i approve yeah. it because it's true it is <laughs> there's often a sleazy politician a professional killer mm. uh, check check deep shadows everywhere check probably raining a lot check uh apparently back when they filmed these films in the 1940s and 50s uh they would film at night because of you know how moody it was and able to get those like deep shadows and and kind of light compositions they thought that wet pavement looked cooler than dry pavement so they would just make it raining a lot for just like the visual effect valid it rains it rains a lot in this comic and also, even when it's not raining, like, it's raining. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's raining. In the soul. It's snowing like a, what would be a delightful, heavy snow, but it reads oh, as yeah. rain. Yeah, they make even the nicest thing that you might think is nice sad. There's a large, oppressive city, including dimly lit bars and nightclubs, usually in noir films. And of course, the main trope that I love the most is the femme fatale. Ah, uh, yes. So we will get into that just right now. Um, So Noir (laughs) is famous for examining and creating what we know today as the femme fatale. It is, she is, a woman of questionable virtue. She is beautiful and seductive and mysterious. She is sexy and she knows it, basically, is what I'm getting at. Uh, She's usually in all black, but sometimes... She's the lady in red, Mm -hmm. which is another trope you see a lot, 
even in non-noir films. You see a sexy woman in red. She's strongly sexual. She knows who she is. She's going to get what she wants, and she's confident. She's dangerous. She's dangerous. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's just... Even if she wouldn't Um, hurt anyone ever, but just like her femininity is dangerous. Her femininity is horribly dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Leads to the downfall of a thousand men. Yeah. So the femme fatale is basically the opposite of a damsel in distress. She's usually overall villainous. And often a wild card, you know, what side she's on, because she's in it for herself. Um, so honestly, if the protagonist lets her, and I will emphasize on lets her, because if you fall into the trap of a femme fatale, it's kind of on you. She's probably going to get you into some real shit. <laughs> and you should have seen that coming. Yes. Um Catwoman is a fantastic femme fatale. Oh, she's so yes. good. I love Catwoman. Catwoman's great. Yes. So yeah, she's may or may not be the bad guy at the end of this story, but she's definitely not the good guy. Um, and that's what makes the femme fatale so great because she's complicated and she's strong and confident. That's what and- I love about Catwoman. She, mm-hmm. she's out for herself, but she's not evil. No. Like she does what she she's feels. She's a survivor. Is right. Yeah. I love Catwoman yeah. so much. She's out for herself at the same level of all of these mafia men and <laughs> Bruce Wayne, all these men who are out for themselves. She does it, but in like a sexy way. Yes, so. she just hurts fewer, and she hurts fewer people in the process. Yeah, she true. doesn't go out to hurt people. She no. tries to do what she needs to do. Yeah. So as like kind of like a cap on what I've been educating all of you guys on, neo-noir is something that uh, is defined pretty much anything after the 50s when noir film shifted and the new genre emerged, Mm neo-noir. Very few films have come out since the 50s that are defined as noir. So pretty much everything is sort of like broad paintbrush sort of like fit in this category of neo-noir. So what we would define as neo-noir is basically movies that have their bones in noir, but are self-aware mm. of their <laughs> noirness. Noirs cannot be self-aware. Absolutely not. <laughs> 100%. Um, so you might actually be surprised that some of your favorite films today within the last few decades are neo-noir films because they have their roots in them but they've reimagined or rejected noir tropes in different ways so that you don't see them as like maybe the black and white film you watched from the 40s so like a few store like a few movies that maybe you guys have seen that are like either obviously noir (laughs) or like semi less obvious noir neo-noir sorry like the dark knight is categorized as a neo-noir film, Batman. Um, you've got Sin City, Fargo. My favorite film of this list, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pulp so Fiction. Good. Ton of Tarantino films are neo-noir. Tarantino has such a boner for noir. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then obviously, one of the most famous neo-noir films of all time is Chinatown. Mm. So if you guys haven't seen it, it's obviously a good movie. 
Um, lots of pulp culture references from it. So Chinatown, which I haven't seen, is neo-noir? I always thought it was like mm-hmm. one of the main examples of noir. No. Oh. No, see, that's what you get when you read some hobos, uh, noir film critic list and not from your friend Melissa who knows everything <laughs> about noir and neo-noir films. And not from a bona fide expert. <laughs> bona fide expert from my one class in college. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you, Melissa. Yeah. For doing part of my job for me as we transition into the value of the long Halloween as a mystery. Because I looked and I found the rules for the detective club that they call the fair play rules. Now, the detective club was a social club that existed in the era of Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie. So the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, and following thereafter, because that was the golden age of detective mysteries. So if you saw uh, the recent movie of Murder on the Orient Express, that's an Agatha Christie story. They were defined by cozy mysteries in which there was, they were more puzzle-like than thriller-like. Basically, the detective investigated without being in particular danger. There was a set amount of, de- of um, suspects and you had to choose amongst those suspects. Of course, all these rules were meant to be broken, and you fe- can feel free to look up the Detective Club's rules of fair play. I also looked at Raymond Chandler's Ten Commandments for Detective Stories. Raymond Chandler was more of the hard-boiled detective story, as Melissa mentioned, and I had a very hard time thinking of modern examples of hard-boiled detective stories. <laughs> An example of a cozy mystery that is modern, is Knives Out, which is a fabulous story, as Melissa said. Um, So I looked at both of them, and I kind of distilled them into less, because I'm more efficient, rules for detective stories. I got to seven rules instead of ten, which they both had. I'm not going to read them all at once. But two rules that I think might apply to this story, because most of the rules have to do with how the mystery is solved, which we don't know yet. But the two rules I picked out are... The mystery must not be too simple and apparent. It should prove a challenge for both the characters and the reader. And it must be a sound and compelling story apart from the mechanism of the mystery. The ending must be satisfying to the reader. And that obviously has to do with the ending. But if it's an interesting story apart from just figuring out who did it, less puzzle-like and more story-like, which that is a rule that I derived solely from Raymond Chandler because the detective club was... Apparently not at all interested in a rule about it being an interesting story apart from the puzzle. So how do you think these issues apply to the rule of not being too simple and apparent or being a good story? So you guys have submitted your predictions of who you think Holiday, the serial killer, might be. And you've provided different answers. And I want to clarify that this is not a test of your ability to guess. Because I, as I say, it should not be easy to guess who the killer is before you get to the really descriptive clues towards the end of the story. It should be open to be anyone. So I would like you guys to introduce who you think Holiday is right now, having only read seven issues. And no shame if you end up being wrong because of the point of the story that we're at. I'm not capable of feeling shame. So... Uh, My guess is that it's vernon who is harvey dent's assistant in the da's office and the reason for that is 
that I am completely convinced that it's someone in the DA's office because mm-hmm. there's been so much like there's it seems like everyone who gets killed first interacts with the DA's office in some way up until uh, what's his fucking name? <laughs> I think I call him Alfredo in my answer, but it's Alberto. Alberto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You did say Alberto in your answer. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> who is um, Carmine Falcone's uh, son. good son who is not involved in the mob world. Yeah, so up until him, everyone who got killed first interacted with the DA's office in some way. So I was pretty sure that it was someone in the DA's office, but I know it's not Harvey Dent because that would be way too obvious. Like, they've given so many clues that it's Harvey Dent, and there's if it is Harvey Dent, I will be very disappointed. Um, <laughs> yes. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's not. So I was thinking it's it has to be someone in the DA's office, and his assistant is really, like, mousy and, like, playing both sides, and he's squirming around in the background, and he's just skittering about, and I just, I feel like it's him. I'm going to reference a rule of detection fiction that I haven't introduced but it was that vermont is always wrong yes <laughs> i'm 100 percent sure that i'm wrong <laughs> i have no idea who it is no idea um there's two rules essentially that refer to not hiding facts from the reader and since harvey dent is being introduced in this story i think it would be disingenuous to have him both become two-faced as spoiler many people know harvey dent is two-faced and yeah. to have him be the killer. That would be concealing his villainous nature from the reader. So I hope it's not Harvey Dent. That would be very disappointing. Yeah, I would be super disappointed if it ends up being Harvey Dent. Yeah, and I'm that would be... pretty sure it's not. Actually, I'm 100% sure it's not because I know his origin story, <laughs> like I said before. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that reassurance because I was worried that there would be a cop-out ending to this story. So yeah. Melissa? Um... I'm using the time-old way of determining who is the villain from a Office episode where Dwight determines who the villain is in a episode <laughs> where Michael, the office manager, goes around forcing them to play this game of, you know, who's the murderer kind of thing. And Dwight has a philosophy in that episode of it's not the person I most suspect and it's not the person I most least suspect because anyone with half a brain would suspect those people. It's who I most medium suspect. Uh, so I submitted that I guessed Barbara Gordon and Gilda were in it together as the murderers. Oh. Because one, they are introduced in the very first issue, which is actually part of that fair play yes. um, list of rules that you gave. Um, my second guess was either Harvey or Vernon, but because for various reasons I discarded them, I thought that Barbara and Gilda had the most to gain from the fucking dicks who keep their husbands from coming home <laughs> being murdered. That is true. Valid. Oh my god. And, and put them in danger. Like oh, they're yes. the ones threatening their husbands. Gilda literally was put in the hospital. 
Harvey Dent is seen having a workbench in the basement with a vice, which is shown to use to shave off the serial guns. You're right. The serial numbers from the guns, which obviously it can't be Harvey Dent. It's too obvious to be Harvey Dent. So it has to be his wife. Wink, wink. Oh, God. You're right. You're right. And the murderer uses the baby, the rubber nipples to silence the guns. Which, by the way, would not work. No, it 100% no, won't work. It's not, it's not real. I looked it up. You can't do <laughs> Following that. Don't try. the logic of the comic, yes. <laughs> Barbara Gordon has rubber nipples at her house because she has a baby. And they show that when, you know, Jim Gordon is washing the dishes. It, like, transitions from a murder scene to, like, a home scene. And it shows them having rubber nipples uh, at both for feeding the baby, etc., and being a gun silencer. So I think they're both in on it to help their husbands have to work less. Well, other reasons other than just that, <laughs> but like that's one of the many reasons. So I guess I, I, I read it. I don't love guessing who is the person because it's either one, it's for me, it's disappointing if I'm wrong. And two, it's sad because I'm right because, because then like you're thinking about it the whole time. Right. I just love letting it wash over me. Yeah. Um, but since you forced us to because you're a horrible person, Veronica, <laughs> uh, I guessed both Gilda and Barbara were in, were, were, I think you're right. In it together. I, I changed, I, I changed my fate. I think you're right. I think it's Gilda. <laughs> That is a super interesting. Well, I I, do, I think it has to be both Barbara and Gilda because Gilda is in the hospital for one of the murderers. Oh yeah, you're right. No, I yeah. take it back. I don't believe you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's just maybe it's just Barbara. I don't see them both. I don't see them both. Working it can either together. be only Barbara or both of them. I think it's Barbara. I yes. yeah, you're right. You've convinced me. It's either both of them or it's Barbara. It's yeah, not it's gotta Vernon. Be he's too. He's not gonna. He's not gonna kill anybody. One, Vernon's he doesn't. Pathetic. I think he doesn't come in until like the third issue as like a real person that we've actually seen on panel. Yeah, like that's he's true. mentioned and he, you see his shadow in the first issue, but you don't yeah. actually see him. as And a also, person with a name. if if it was Barbara and Gilda, they would both have access. You know, yes. if they wanted to, to that infer, so that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, I was thinking because I was thinking it has to be someone in the DA's office. I'm gonna look so stupid if it's like <laughs> not them because I've been so thoroughly convinced. But no, it's not. <laughs> no, I agree I mean, with Melissa. I think Melissa's right. Yeah, I I just think Vernon and Carla I'm like excited are both- <laughs> now. I don't know. I'm like excited. I know, like guys, mysteries are so exciting when the revelations yeah. start coming. Oh my god, I love them so Vernon much. Vernon and Carla were my, like, secondary guesses, because how the Roman, or, you know, Carmine, uh, what's his last name? Falcone. 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 Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Carmen Falcone. your eyes. <laughs> yeah, you were terrified. <laughs> Carmen Falcone, he says at the beginning of the first issue, you know, if I end up dead, blame my sister Carla, because ah. she's probably like a bitter old bitch. Um, <laughs> and so like, I was like, you know what, maybe Carla would do it. She definitely seems like someone who would do it. And then I was like, Vernon is sketchy as hell, too. He might have done it. But I was like, but you know what? You know what? Who probably has a rubber nipple and a vice to shave off yeah, the serial they have, for guns? They would yes. have the rubber nipples. Yes, they would. And what's so, her face? Uh, Harvey Dent's wife wouldn't be doing anything with them because they wanted to have a baby, but they yes, haven't. Right. Yes. And that's why oh I thought it would be Oh my God, you're so right. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> it's so exciting. 
All right. So because you forced me to like go through and dissect every that that's my answer after dissecting every panel from ep, uh, issue one through seven. Right. Like Melissa um, was super methodical about this. She like listed out <laughs> everything like a detective. Like I just I just thought of who I was thinking of at the time <laughs> at the end of these issues. My answer, which I did not submit because I'm the one reading the submissions and I know what I think. As Monte said in his submission, I thought it was Alberto for a long time, but he's dead. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot to say that. Yeah. I definitely thought it was Alberto at first. He was yeah. he suspicious. died, and I was like, whoa! Yeah. Whoa! He was suspicious as hell because he was watching everything. Like, yeah. okay. And then and then you would see the people he saw being Reflected murdered later. Reflected yeah. Yeah. But then he died, so it's like, okay, never yeah. mind. It's not Alberto. So <laughs> then, <laughs> like, I'm able to kind of, like, blank out my other perceptions of things because i've read a few things that happen after this but i don't know the answer for a while i thought it was pointing to batman being the person because if you look at right after he defeats the joker in issue um in issue five four five yeah five yeah Yeah, you're right five in issue five he's like got an internal monologue he's standing in front of the clock tower he's got the joker unconscious next to him he says the new year One were the promise I made to my parents, the promise to rid this city of the evil that took their lives, might finally be within reach. So it's kind of trying to red herring to Batman that, like, he's killing mobsters to rid the city of crime. But I know Batman wouldn't do that. Yeah, and he definitely wouldn't use a gun. Yeah, especially in such a mainstream story as The Long Halloween. Like, there are crazy one-off comics where Batman kills people written by people who are way too into themselves and their perception of Batman, but I don't think this is one of them. And then I thought it was Maroney, but I thought Maroney was dead, but Melissa pointed out before we started recording that Maroney is not dead. No, Um, he's not dead. But he does say, holiday, blaming them for killing everyone in his house. So now I don't think it's Maroney. So, like, literally, I don't have any idea. I like Melissa's theory. (laughs) All right, so we've talked about how it must not be too simple and apparent and should be a challenge to determine who the suspect, the guilty party is. For the other rule that I've applied to this story about it being a valid story outside of the mystery, I want to specify it doesn't have to be a valid story apart from any mention of the mystery. It's just apart from the mechanism and the puzzle of the mystery. So do you guys think this is an interesting story apart from puzzling out who Holiday is? Yeah, I definitely do. The first time I read it, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Nice. I had to reread it again so that I could try to come up with a guess. But the first time I read it, I wasn't really paying attention to that at all. I was just enjoying the story. Yeah. I also, it literally is because you asked us yes. to guess. <laughs> 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 I went through and like, like decided to come up with a theory. Yes. Which I want to specify, you don't need to be trying to guess who the killer is while reading a mystery. It's totally valid not to do so. I just wanted to do it as a fun segment. That we could yeah. think yeah. about. Fun and yet not fun because <laughs> having to think about who's the killer involves I'm having fun. A minimal <laughs> amount of thought is what I'm saying. Like I literally had to go back through it and think about it. Otherwise I was like, well, I don't know, like Harvey, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, maybe somebody. <laughs> He's clearly the most obvious person, so probably him, I guess. <laughs> That's the thing though about like can I just say, though, that's the thing about these stories, though, because in real life, 
the person who most likely did it is the person that did it. Right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, it's always the spouse. It's yeah. always the like, yeah, the jealous lover. Like, it's always yeah. that guy. That's another reason. Noir is just not for me because I like, <laughs> I like the, re- I like real stuff. I like really looking into real monsters and looking at their psychology and stuff. And I will say that usually in real life, the person who is the most obvious suspect is the one that did it. Well, really, this story is kind of compressing the cozy mystery and the hard-boiled detective mystery. Because in hard-boiled detective mysteries, it's not necessarily that you have a limited amount of suspects or that it's the least obvious. That's more of like an Agatha Christie thing. And obviously, cozy mysteries are different. Like, Dorothy Sayers, often her, like, flip moment was something that made all the evidence you were trying to make much more simple. Like, in one case... They realized that the timing of the death that they had given to it was wrong because the murder victim had anemia. So the coagulation of the blood was wrong. Agatha Christie usually does it by having the least likely suspect in a way you can't predict for each and every story, be it. And that's her genius. So that's kind of a melding. So you might still like hard-boiled stories. Often it's like, yeah, it was her ex-husband or whatever. (laughs) Not always. Some of the best ones have a less predictable. But it's more about the store, the journey of the detective. So, after having read and discussed these seven first issues of Batman The Long Halloween, what are your guys' general impressions after our discussion? Um, so my, I'm, mine is pretty much the same. I, for the most part, I still really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a great story. I think that Melissa, Melissa's guess is probably right. And that made me really excited. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to reading the second half of it. Yes. Melissa? I have no change in opinion. <laughs> Valid. Still good. All right. Um, My opinion hasn't changed, but I'm like really excited that you guys liked it. I was worried because I liked it a lot. Um, I thought Monte would dislike it because it's Batman, and I didn't know what Ma- Melissa would think, but it's like kind of verging on edgelordy because of noir, but she liked it as well. So I'm really happy, and I'm really happy you guys were deci- er, excited about discussing who the culprit was, and I'm very pleased and excited about reading the second half, which I read this comic way in advance of this season to pick it out, and I've been so mad that I can't read ahead, so I'm very excited that I get to read ahead now. Yeah, I just want to say that I'm an expert in noir, so I can appreciate a noir uh, story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on to our favorite panels. Uh, We all, every week, choose our favorite panels from the comics and describe them and why we love them. I will go first, as it was my choice. So I had a hard time choosing. Um, I wanted to choose one with Catwoman, but more important than that, I think, is the one I have decided on, which is in... Issue three, which is the Christmas episode, and it's after the Joker has killed someone who is called Toots, apparently, who is a mobster (laughs) uh, in Maroni's Italian restaurant, and the other mobsters are carrying the body out to put in the trunk, and they do so, and then Batman, like, drops out of nowhere, (laughs) slamming the trunk shut. (laughs) And this was just the first time that I really felt like it was a superhero comic, like that it was cartoony and fun, because I had been interested already, but it was reading more like a detective story. 
and I really just enjoyed it just like he's suddenly in the frame looking all mad <laughs> all like curled up Batman like and like later there would be more panels that would emphasize this like the ones with the Joker later and before but this one really like drove it home for me like this is a fun comic with fun superhero action and I just really enjoyed how cool Batman felt how OP he felt and it really felt made me feel like a Batman comic yeah mine is uh kind of similar it's from issue four when Batman is trying to stop the Joker from uh spreading his Joker gas among the populace and his cape gets caught in the propeller and it like yanks on him and then the speech bubble is (laughs) (laughs) Batman's super long traily like curled up cape is so silly and cool at the same yes, time. <laughs> I thought I thought that his cape was um up until this point and then also a lot after this point I thought his cape was drawn really cool and it's like this billowing kind of shadow or whatever and it's so um I can't necessarily think of the word not thematic but like you know moody and yeah, yeah, it's so atmospheric and so, like, moody and stuff, but then on this one, it gets caught in a fucking <laughs> propeller, and he, like, almost gets strangled by it, and it's like, oh! I'm like, you know what? Edna Mode was right. She was no right. Capes. Yes! <laughs> no capes. No capes. No capes. Capes are not worth it. <laughs> I also thought that while reading this panel. Um, <laughs> I, I did think that batman's cape in many different scenes was very just dramatic and honestly (laughs) he felt like like furniture disappeared so Mm -hmm. that his cape could be extra Mm -hmm. dramatic like when he's breaking into the falcone uh office to get into the safe people disappeared so that his (laughs) cape could be very dramatic and catwoman and him are in 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 the office like it's like a tiny ass office and his like cape is taking up like literally on the floor like the train of a gown it's awesome (laughs) yeah it's it's like a wedding gown uh that's like the kind of reverence you feel with his cape um my favorite panel catwoman issues number seven when riddler is postulating who the murderer is and he's going through the different possibilities and he at one point accuses Catwoman of being the murderer and he is using this like stupid trope like women can't use heavier guns like (laughs) and he's just like this 22 pistol is lightweight for women you know like (laughs) whatever it's it's so dumb but he has this like Catwoman, like a vision of Catwoman in a fedora and a, like a trench coat, and she's holding a, a pumpkin. But she still has her cat mask. She still is wearing her cat. She suit. put the fedora on on top of her stupid yeah. cat ears, and she's like holding a jack o' lantern and the gun, which is like the weapon of choice. And she's about to like sneak into wherever she's doing, and it's just so like noir because obviously, you know. Obviously, it's Catwoman <laughs> wearing a trench coat and a fedora <laughs> in a purple bodysuit underneath. <laughs> it's so good, just like through that lens of the Riddler, it was just so funny. It oh was my God. like I laughed, and I was like, "Well, obviously, obviously, Catwoman isn't the person because obviously, this is not what happened." <laughs> no, I the only person in this comic that I never once suspected was the killer was Catwoman. No, yeah. never. 
Yeah, it had that uh, kind of that vibes from He-Man when uh, Skeletor is like, she fainted just like a woman. <laughs> <laughs> kind of have that like, <laughs> like, that's a catchphrase in our friend group. Yeah, it's like such just a vibe. Like a woman, <laughs> just yeah, like a like woman. A woman. <laughs> It's just Catwoman in a fedora. So good. Catwoman. She used a 22. Just like a woman. <laughs> like, just being like, women Women can only hold, like, lightweight guns. Like, yeah. it's just so, it's so just dumb. so good. It's just also, so dumb. Like, Catwoman is like, she beats the shit out of, like, actually. Yes. She could definitely use a normal gun. She's also got, Not like, razor-sharp I mean, claws uh, and, like, can climb buildings. Like, she's Yeah, well, that's up. why I didn't... I was like, well, if Catwoman... I didn't suspect Catwoman or Batman because I was like, they would use... It would be different. It wouldn't... They wouldn't shoot yeah. people. Yeah, no. Yeah. Like, Catwoman could definitely kill right. someone, but she wouldn't do it like that. Yeah, she wouldn't. Which is just why it's just so funny. Because, <laughs> like, obviously it's not her. But then they're like, but what? she's a woman. Therefore, that's her only defining trait. Which means that she has to use the woman gun. The woman. The the, the, uh, the gun made for the woman. <laughs> the 22. The gun. The woman. The gun. The woman. Like, it just becomes like, like a... That's such a Riddler thing to say. Also. It's such a Riddler <laughs> thing to say. It's like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, but like, okay. Yes. Nine lives, nine bullets. <laughs> anyway, so all of these favorite panels will have a post on our Instagram at the SJW Comics Cast. Sometimes we post to Twitter at the same handle. Check us out, like us, send us a message if you love us. If not, maybe keep it to yourself. Yeah, um, fuck off. <laughs> With that, I will take us into our self-care corner for the week, which is something that we did this week that was good or better for our mental, physical, emotional health that kept us sane through the 2020 year, staved off the darkness. What is what you guys did this week that was not awful? I'll go first because mine is not good. So (laughs) what I did was literally nothing. I stayed up too late, woke up at the same time, was exhausted, and was pissy to everybody at work on Friday. So instead of what I did this week, which was nothing, ate junk food and didn't sleep, um, I'm resolving to go to bed on time next week at least. Because sleep I have found over the last couple years, I've looked and I've looked like, what's making me so miserable on these specific days? It's literally lack of sleep. Just that. Sleep is so important. So I'm going to go to bed on time next week. I apologize for not taking care of myself this week. Unforgiven. Yes, I know. Um, I got some Talenti ice cream yesterday because uh, this has been an, a horrible, awful, no good, shitty week. <laughs> uh, so I got some ice cream and I ate it today while we were podcasting and it was fantastic. Uh, also, I did buy Assassin's Creed Valhalla because, yeah, I decided there's no point in me waiting. I haven't played any of it yet because I'm still, I've decided I'm still going to play the old ones before I play Valhalla. So that, and by old ones, I mean Origins and Odyssey, before I play Valhalla to make so that by the time I play it, all the bugs will have been worked out. Right. So then it'll feel like I waited. Yeah. For all the books to be worked out. 
That's what I did for Fallout 76. I didn't start playing it till like a year after it came. Yeah. But I hope Valhalla treats you as you deserve to be treated. Oh, I've heard it's a fantastic, beautiful game, and I'm pretty sure it'll be the best thing in my life for the next few months. I'm going to say that for my self-care this week, it was better choices for meals. I didn't eat out the entire week, which seems ridiculous. But thinking back, I didn't go out and eat any fast food. I ate only food that I'd eaten my, uh, made myself and ate within like a normal, reasonable, expected amount of food for a person to eat. <laughs> Eating just within moderation, mm-hmm. even when things are bad. That's kind of what I did this week, so. Yes. Applause for you. Yeah. Everyone out there, please take care of yourselves. It's a very stressful time. Anyway, next week, we are reading the second half of The Long Halloween, starting at issue eight. And we will read the conclusion. We will talk about the conclusion and how the overall story went. I'm glad that you guys liked this comic because two weeks of a comic you hate would be miserable. Yeah, but we do it for the fans. We do it for the fans. Yeah, we would never not read something for the fans. So that's it for this week. If you enjoyed our show, please like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. We would appreciate it very much. It helps to spread the podcast. Uh, If you want to keep up with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at sjwcomicscast or email us directly at sjwcomicspodcast at gmail.com. Anyone want to plug anything? Um, Just as usual, we'll continue to put in the episode uh, description ways that you can get involved in Georgia to try to flip the Senate, get Mitch McConnell out of power because he doesn't deserve to be anywhere close to it. Does not deserve. Excellent. All right. In addition, uh, if you guys have not listened to it, please listen to the two-part collaboration episode with The Colored Pages Book Club. You can find them at thesecoloredpages.com. It's a fabulous one-off episode not included in any of our season brackets, but we uh, invited on Marcy and Akko from The Colored Pages Book Club, and they are absolutely delightful, and we had a fabulous conversation, so... Please go back and look at those bonus episodes at the end of season four. Anyway, this was our podcast. See you next week. Uh, goodbye. Bye. Bye.